Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic, episode 6.0, Come One, Come All to This Tragic Affair. A new episode numbering system requires a new opening, too. If you didn't listen to the brief update published yesterday, we changed the episode numbering convention, so each new story would represent a new series. Uh, If you want to know more on what that weird sentence actually means, just listen to the like four-minute thing from yesterday. Last episode, we finished our series on Knights of the Old Republic, including the redemption of Bastila Shan, Revan's duel with Darth Malak, and the destruction of the Starforge. This time, we are going to introduce you to my favorite story in all of Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Sith Lords. We'll cover the five-year period that occurs between KOTOR and its sequel, talk about all the meta surrounding Knights 2, and watch the Jedi Order die. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, there's always a bit of truth in Legends. All right. The endings of Knights of the Old Republic in episode 5.10, Let the Past Die, Kill It If You Have To, we covered the canonical ending where Lightside Revan romances a redeemed Bastila and they save the Republic along with eight other companions. But what about Evil Revan, or Lady Revan, or an Evil Lady Revan? What happens if the player chooses those options? Well, a light side female Revan is pretty simple, because the game ends in the exact same way, except she either romanced Karth Onassi or Juhani. You could always do a light side ace Revan too, though that doesn't change the game much or really affect the outcome. A male dark side Revan, on the other hand, changes the outcome drastically. After defeating Darkseid Bastila on the summit of the Temple of the Ancients, Revan again chooses the Dark Side, reclaims his title as Dark Lord of the Sith. He and Bastila then slaughter Jolie Bindo and Johanni on the Temple Summit before returning to the beaches of Rakata Prime. There, the once and future Darth Revan kills Mission Vow and possibly Zalbar while Karth is able to escape into the jungles of Rakata Prime's main island. Aboard the Starforge, Revan and Bastila carve through the Sith forces before Shan uses her battle meditation to aid the Sith fleet in their battle against the Republic. Revan kills Malak and officially reclaims the mantle of the Dark Lord of the Sith with Bastila as his Sith apprentice and lover. Darth Revan's rule is proclaimed on the summit of the temple before victorious Sith forces who bend the knee to their new overlord. In this alternative ending, Revan's Sith prepare for a massive assault on Coruscant in the Core Worlds, but are halted when Darth Revan senses a threat to his power in the Unknown Regions, departing the galaxy to confront it. A dark side Lady Revan can still romance Karth up to Rakata Prime, but he'll flee into the jungles instead of joining the Sith. The rest of the game is the same as dark side Male Revan, but without the Bastila romance. Dark side Lady Revan really gets the metaphorical shaft in the romance department, and only the metaphorical shaft. There was a cut ending where Revan could fully romance Karth, kill Basta on the Starforge, and die with Anasi when the foundry was destroyed. I didn't even intend for that to, for that metaphorical shaft to be a double entendre, so uh, I'm proud of you. I, I didn't even mean that, so there we go. 
what we missed from Knights of the Old Republic. We tried our best to hit every big decision, fun or relevant side quest, and some really random NPCs, but we know we missed some things. Currently, there are only two we can think of, but if you notice something, please let us know and we'll update accordingly. The first is the Pyrduag species that appear on Terrace and Tatooine. A hunchback creature consisting of a small green head and arms rising out of the back of a large bipedal beast with yellowish skin and another face on the opposite side of its body. Though both sides, uh, or though both parts of the body were separately sentient, only the green being communicated in Galactic Basic because most beings couldn't even hear the yellow being's speech. The yellow being controlled movement by moving the legs. Pyre Duag have names that are unpronounceable in Galactic Basic because they require four ears to hear and two mouths to speak. And their homeworld was Sorgis. Revan encountered one on Terrace, while the second, called... Gosh, I shouldn't have put this in here. <laughs> Mictunonjuice Orgu encountered... Uh, <laughs> Mictunonjuice Orgu was a traitor in Anchorhead on Tatooine. That's what I get for putting that in there. That's my own, my own fault. The second thing we missed is Canon Alert 35... Even though nothing by this name appeared in Knights of the Old Republic or Legends, period, one of the many curios in Dryden Voss's office in the 2017 film Solo is called a Rakatan Wraith Box. The box was small with intricate engravings on the outside. The Wraith Box first appeared in Solo and was subsequently named in the Visual Dictionary, written by Pablo Hidalgo. Though we lack additional confirmation, the Wraith boxes would appear to originate from the world Rakata Prime and lend more credence to the Rakatan species existing in canon. That is still unconfirmed, though. Before we depart, let's remember all the Knights of the Old Republic references that have been canonized. These include the Rakatan, Selkath, and Pyrdwag species. Numerous worlds, such as Manan, Sleheron, Malachor V, Terrace, and Rakata Prime. Pazak and Terentatex have also been introduced in the new canon. Finally, the Mandalorian Wars, which were for first introduced in KOTOR, have been adapted into something called the Jedi-Mandalorian War. This conflict seems to encompass multiple events described in Legends. The Mandalorian-Jedi War was referenced a few times in Star Wars Rebels. We did an extensive update on the war in Canon Alert 16 from Episode 4.4, Bad Jedi Pickup Lines, during our series on the KOTOR comics. Hell, while we're here, let's incorporate Mandalorian Rally Masters by reference since they arose from the Mandalorian Wars and were alluded to in KOTOR. That armor was famously shown in the background of the climactic blaster battle in the anthology film Solo. You can hear more about Rally Masters and their next reference in Canon Alerts 25 and 24, respectively, from episode 5.3. The Mandalorian world Ordo has also been mentioned in a reference book. There are a few more vague references and possible connections. Delilah Dawson confirmed that the species of hawk, the Ebon Hawk, that appeared in her newest novel, Black Spire, is a reference to the ship from KOTOR. Alex J. Kane said that the world 
Slayheron and its hut overlord were the inspiration for Gracchus the Hut, who appeared as the leader of a gladiatorial ring on Nar Shaddaa. That story appears in the Star Wars comic arc Showdown on the Smuggler's Moon and involves Luke Skywalker and a bunch of Jedi holocrons. It's really neat, actually. The game also seems to have heavily influenced the design of Starkiller Base and likely the mask of Kylo Ren as well. As you can see, KOTOR has contributed a great deal to the new canon already, and that's before they make a movie about it. That's how we truly want to leave KOTOR, by begging people who don't listen to this podcast to make a movie about it. It wouldn't hurt if it was actually a good movie either, just saying. Also, we're more than happy to consult. That's very true. Uh, one thing I, uh, so we just don't have to do a correction next time. The pyre duag species has not been canonized. I just wrote that again because I wanted to put another insufferably unpronounceable name in here. Anyway, between Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2, 3956 to 3951. In order to set KOTOR 2 up, we're going to cover the five-year interstitial period between the games in as much depth as possible. What might be surprising is the lack of information we have on this time period. If this were a real history podcast right now is when we'd say that the primary sources for this period, time period are threadbare. Those times in antiquity when the historical record consists of a couple of coins, some teeth, and a church scholar writing a heavily censored account 300 years after the fact. That's a long way of saying we don't know much about the timeline between the ending of Knights of the Old Republic in 3956 and the beginning of Knights of the Old Republic 2 in 3951. And that time period even includes a novel and the Knights of the Old Republic 2 prequel comic. Though it should be noted that the novel is Revan, which only focuses on the titular character's actions after KOTOR and serves as a tie-in to the Old Republic MMO. We'll cover it in full when we get to that game, but we will talk about it briefly here. What's worse, the KOTOR 2 prequel comic, Unseen Unheard, is only six pages long and provides a little additional detail. But we're still going to cover it in this episode for obvious reasons. We don't even get one of those cool maps showing troop movements and big battles for the Sith Civil War like we did for the Mandalorian Wars and Jedi Civil War. Even the Great Hyperspace War got one, and it was over in like 18 hours. Normally, we put those maps in the show notes and no one checks them out, but now we don't even have a nice map to ignore. If you remember episode 5.0, formerly episode 22, The Execution of All Things, this episode will follow a similar structure. First, we will look at how each of the big galactic players, the Republic, the Jedi Order, and the Sith, are faring following the Jedi Civil War. Then we will work our way through the timeline until we get to the destruction of the Jedi Order during the disaster of Qatar and the return of the Jedi Exile to known space. This, one, this reminds me, the, the episode title, Execution of All Things, reminds me that uh, Rilo Kylie totally feels like a Star Wars character name. Um, very important side note. Yeah, it does. It's a really good song. It is. It's a fantastic song. Fantastic I'm song. old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh we, we, we can share in the Rilo Kylie here. So, the Battle of Rakata Prime served as the climax to both the Jedi Civil War and Knights of the Old Republic. 
As Revan and his companions stood at the base of the Temple of the Ancients and starfighters made victory passes up high above, things looked promising for the Republic. The Sith were leaderless after Revan killed that jawless bastard Darth Malak in a duel on the Starforge. The enormous Sith fleet defending the superweapon was annihilated by the Republic fleet. The Starforge, the source of the entire Sith arsenal from capital ships to blasters, was turned into space debris by dozens of Hammerhead cruisers. No, seriously, the cutscene shows Hammerheads destroying the orbital stabilizers. If you remember nothing else from this podcast, please remember the Hammerhead cruiser is the greatest ship in Star Wars history. Truly the trireme of the Old Republic. After three years of war, billions of galactic civilians lay dead, <laughs> but the, they had peace again. At least the living did. Where Darth Revan's Sith Empire had once conquered a third of the known galaxy, that territory was soon swallowed up by the Galactic Republic and the Huts. Both the Star Forge and Rakata Prime were soon forgotten by the Galactic community as the Republic covered up mentions of either at the urging of the Jedi. The Order believed that if the Galactic community learned of this previously unknown precursor species, it would incite panic and fear in the masses. While that may be true, it's still a flimsy excuse for erasing part of history. Rakata Prime and the remnants of the Starforge would lie undiscovered for 2,956 years until their discovery by Darth Bane during his quest to rebuild the Sith Empire. When Bane arrived, he found that much of the Starforge debris had formed itself into a ring-like structure around Rakata Prime. The internal rebuilding mechanisms that Rakata built in along with the Starforge's semi-sentience meant that it could never truly die. Even if Bane's visit is the last time we saw or heard from the Starforge in Legends. The Republic after the Jedi Civil War. Now that the Jedi's... Okay, that wasn't a real thing. Now that the Jedi Civil War is over, we can reflect on its losses and the state of the galaxy by the end of 3956. The Republic began some modest rebuilding efforts, though they wouldn't start in earnest for another year. The Galactic Republic, which had stood for more than 21,000 years at this point, was stretched thin and on the verge of collapse. Resource scarcity occurred, and the Republic experienced a refugee resettlement crisis that would last for at least five years. Though the Republic had a seemingly open asylum policy, they did little to help the refugees after the fact. You'll, require that, you'll recall that Darth Malak was originally a refugee from a world that burned in the first years of the Mandalorian war, Wars in the Outer Rim. At the time, Malak was a boy using his given name, Alec. However, due to the Republic's policy on refugee resettlement, Alec's family was given a new surname to correspond with the village from which they escaped. Alex was Alex. Alex's new surname was too long for anyone, especially children, to pronounce, so he was given the nickname Squint, which was short for his new last name. His family lived in bad conditions, unaided by the Republic. When he was given over to the Jedi at a young age due to his Force sensitivity, Squint hated the Republic for these practices and still understandably resented the name change of many years later when... In 3963, he took up what he considered to be his true name, Malik. 
The sheer number of displaced refugees soon became a problem for large hub worlds like Narshada and Hut Space. The Smuggler's Moon soon became a haven for refugees in 3956, and that wouldn't change until 3951. Refugees were simply pushed out of sight and not provided with healthcare, work, or even transportation, and so they fell prey to slavers, criminals, gangs, and other unsavory sorts. The refugee experience on Narshida was shared by millions across Republic space as well. Before 3956, Ended the Order of Shasa was founded on Manan by the young, force-sensitive Selkath who Revan had aided while infiltrating the Sith base. Shasa formed a new sect to eliminate the need to rely on the Jedi Order, thus keeping Manan independent in the future. The Order was based out of the abandoned mining station the Republic had built. The Jedi Order after the Jedi Civil War The Jedi, meanwhile, were broken. As Kriya said, quote, the Jedi Civil War destroyed the Jedi. By the war's end, barely a hundred Jedi remained. Many fell in battle, and many more were seduced by Revan's teachings. Way back when we started Tales of the Jedi in episode 3.1, we said that 4000 to 3951 BBY would slowly but surely dismantle the Jedi. We even began to note the number of Jedi remaining in the galaxy after each story. In 4000 BBY, when Ulic Caldroma's story begins, there are thousands of Jedi serving as defenders of peace and justice across the galaxy. After four years of strife that included the saga of Nomi Sunrider, the Beast Wars of Andron, and, worst of all, the Great Sith War, the Order was reduced to little more than 1,000 members. The years of the Great Restoration from 3995 to 3964 were largely peaceful ones for the Old Republic, but that masked a growing crisis. The Mandalorian Wars raged in the Outer Rim, and the Republican Jedi ignored the conflict for 12 years, from 3976 to 3964. If you notice that the Old Republic considered their Great Restoration to last all the way to 3964, even though the Outer Rim was being ravaged for 12 of those years, you aren't the only one. Regardless, the Jedi numbers seemed to swell from the end of the Great Sith War until the very end of the Mandalorian Wars. New knights were trained and the Order seemed to be rebuilding, at least until Vindication and then, to a much greater extent, Malachor V. Vindication involved a palace coup by a Jedi splinter group called the Covenant, led by a failed Jedi and Sith named Hazen. Many Jedi clashed and died. The Covenant had hundreds of members, and they all died or were otherwise subdued, along with the loyal Jedi who perished. Malachor V was something altogether worse. When Revan's mass shadow generator was unleashed, it killed, it killed hundreds of Jedi in addition to Revan's other enemies. He then, led, he then fled the galaxy with many loyal Jedi who would soon become Dark Jedi. By the time Revan and Malak returned to known space in 3959, they initiated the Jedi Civil War, which lasted until 3956. As of 3956, the Jedi Order had just under 100 active members due to both defection and death during the Jedi Civil War. That doesn't even account for the near total knowledge loss 
that the order suffered during that crucial 49-year period. The first blow came at Ossus in 3996 when the Sith used an ancient superweapon to cause a Kron cluster of stars to simultaneously supernova. The galactic firestorm hit several systems and eventually scoured Ossus of all life and destroyed a majority of the Holocron's texts and other artifacts stored on the Jedi Library world. Later, the Jedi Covenant spent nearly 30 years hoarding Sith artifacts and other knowledge, most of which was destroyed in the KOTOR comics. Finally, Darth Malak's destruction of the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine was another, albeit lesser, blow to the Jedi knowledge base. Unbeknownst to most, many of the artifacts, holocrons, and documents were transported from Dantooine to a secret academy on Telos IV earlier in the Jedi Civil War in anticipation of just such an attack. The Sith, after the Jedi Civil War... The remnants of Revan's Sith Empire were shattered above the Starforge. Those remaining in the galaxy fled to the dark corners of space and descended into factional fighting. It is said that the Sith Civil War began the moment the Jedi Civil War ended. In fact, the Jedi Civil War was a label applied after the fact in KOTOR 2, and was called that because the wider galaxy couldn't tell the difference between Jedi and Sith for the most part. The Second Sith War is still a better title, but we digress. The Sith Civil War, on the other hand, was a literal civil war between Sith factions rallying behind various Sith Wars. Lords, even each little more than petty warlords fighting for the scraps of Revan Sith Empire. The Sith Civil War began immediately after the end of the Jedi Civil War in 3956, though it may have started even earlier. Darth Sion would later say that Revan's actions at the Sith Academy and Korriban killed what little unity the Sith had left, and they began warring almost immediately, possibly before the Battle of Rakata Prime. But warlords did as warlords so often do. They fought against one another in heated battles for supremacy to emerge victorious. We don't know most of the bit players, but we do know that three came out on top. A zombie, a demon and a fallen Jedi Master to teach them both. Darth Sion, Darth Nihilus, and Darth Trya formed the Sith Triumvirate, a loose confederation of Sith Lords, each with their own agenda, but united by hatred. And any alliance based on hatred is, quote, a fragile alliance at best, quote. Sometime after the Mandalorian Wars, Darth Trya found the Trias Academy on Malachor V, the only surviving structure on the Broken World. In 3955, she began drawing other factions of Sith to the Dark Locus, Dark Side Locus, and the three Sith Lords entered into their alliance. They would use subtle methods to interfere with Republic politics and create echoes in the Force and draw Jedi to the Dark Side. Darth Sion, the Lord of Pain, hunted the remaining Jedi using hundreds of Sith assassins trained at places like Malachor V. Darth Nihilus, the Lord of the Hunger, who had to constantly feed on force energy to sustain his life and power. Finally, Darth Trya, the Lord of Betrayal, driven by her desire to demolish the Jedi after being exiled from the Order. Galactic Restoration Begins Before the end of 3955, Supreme Chancellor Tol Kressa initiated the Telosian Restoration Project. The effort was a test test case to see if planetary restoration and terraforming was possible for worlds devastated by the recent wars. 
oversight for the Talosian restoration was given to an Athorian named Chodo Habat, who was Force-sensitive. Habat and his herd of Athorians were incredibly gifted in rebuilding the world, and the project was initially successful. Telos IV was divided into many separate restoration zones, and wildlife was imported to rebuild the habitats. The project was managed from Citadel Station, a massive orbital space station that held housing, restoration efforts, and all the other amenities that people need, like a cantina and gambling. However, trouble loomed on the horizon. The project would be severely hampered by the bureaucracy of the Telos government as Zerker Corporation bribed their way in and started to push their greed and graft into the project. Zerka saw the chance to exploit another world and make a profit, and by 3951, they were doing a damn good job of it. Zerka's involvement destroyed much of the progress Chodo's herd had made and was causing massive problems in the restoration zones. Despite seeming to only affect one world, the Telosian Restoration Project was monumentally important both to the stability of the Galactic Republic and to other devastated worlds. Suffice to say that the restoration project carried so much weight that its failure would mean that no more restoration projects would be planned for other worlds such as Eris III, Sirocco, and Duro. The Telosian restoration project also led to the creation of the Godot series of calculation droids, a fact that will become very relevant once we reach Nar Shaddaa. The Dark Wars the Sith Civil War is unlike almost any other conflict in Star Wars in that it lasted for years, only has a couple of real engagements that we know of, and involved multiple proxy and shadow wars. The Sith sought to consolidate their power and eliminate their eternal enemies, the Jedi. Galactic conquest and Sith control of the Republic was, at best, a tertiary concern, if it was even an objective to begin with. On his ship above Narish Shaddaa in Knights of the Old Republic 2, Gotu seems to believe the Sith could and would assume political leadership after eradicating the Jedi, but that seems unlikely. Sion existed solely to destroy the Jedi. He wasn't interested in the trappings of the Sith Code or in furthering the Sith as a political body. Nihilus, it was known, had no intention to rule the galaxy. He existed only to feed on Force energies after being made into a wound in the force at Malachor V. Finally, whether Darth Trya had intentions for galactic rule is irrelevant because he's not a member of the Sith Triumvirate when KOTOR II begins. As 3955 was ending, the Sith Triumvirate initiated the first Jedi purge from the shadows. In 3954, Darth Sion sent out his Sith assassins from the Trias Academy on Malachor V, and they set about killing the Jedi from the shadows. As we will come to see, the first Jedi Purge was, by a wide margin, the most successful Sith Purge of the Jedi in galactic history, including Order 66. 3954 was also the year the Sith Triumvirate fully cemented its rule over the remaining fragments of the Sith. The trio of leaders ruled from their power base at the Trias Academy on Malachor V, though Darth Nihilus went to the fringes of known space and fed on Force energy when necessary waiting for the perfect time to strike. The time period from 3955 to 3951, when the first Jedi Purge and Sith Civil War overlap, is known as the Dark Wars. Order 
Where's Revan? In 3954, we also have a very special birth. Bastilus Shan and Revan had a baby boy named Vayner Shan. Vanner, Vayner, I don't know. V-A-N-E-R. Unfortunately, Revan would never meet his son because he was off in the unknown regions. Vanner's birth gives us a chance to catch up with Revan after the end of KOTOR using the description using descriptions from the novel Revan. As we said, we'll go into it in much greater detail after Knights of the Old Republic 2. One other note about Vanner. In addition to his name being an anagram for Revan, he also wasn't Force-sensitive. It's incredibly rare that the offspring of a Force-sensitive cannot touch the Force, only occurring three times in Legends. Of the other two, one is also a descendant of Revan and Bastila's Force lineage, Theron Shan. Following the end of Knights of the Old Republic, Revan and Bastila settled into an apartment on Coruscant and soon after got married, much to the chagrin of the Jedi Masters. It was said that Revan drank so much on his wedding night that he had a hangover that lasted for days. Revan was a hero, so the Order couldn't publicly sanction him, but they tried to. Revan even offered to teach his new Force doctrine that positive emotions can strengthen one's connection to the Force, but was rebuffed and received another stern rebuke. Revan was apparently quite serene about the whole thing, but Bastil was indignant about that about the disrespect. Revan suffered at the hands of a stodgy old Jedi Council. Revan declined. Uh, Revan declined, but then became troubled after he started to have dreams and visions of his old life and remembered more of that threat from the true Sith that K- that Kreia mentions in Kotor Two. Originally intended as a hint of things to come in KOTOR 3, these lines of dialogue were later used by Drew Carpician to mean the Sith Emperor, a near-immortal Sith amassing power in the unknown regions. It was the Sith Emperor who turned Revan and Malak fully to the dark side, gave them the title Darth, and sent them back to the galaxy to find the Starforge. They were to be the vanguard of the Sith Emperor's invasion, but broke free of his mental domination, and Revan formed his own empire. Seeing visions of truly great evil lurking in the unknown regions, Revan knew that he had to act to regain his memories and defeat the threat to his family and the galaxy. At this point, Revan still had T3M4 and HK47 around on Coruscant, though HK47 couldn't really go out very much because of his penchant for senseless bloodletting. In 3954, the Nightmares and Force visions of a coming darkness were so overpowering that Revan decided he had to act to protect Bastila and their unborn child. Revan decided to meet with Candorus Ordo to discuss more about Mandalore the Ultimate's reasons for entering the Mandalorian Wars. Revan enlisted Ordo's help in speaking with the other Mandalorians and then attempted to contact his friend and former top general Mitra Surik. However, his searches through the Jedi archives proved fruitless as all information regarding Surik had been wiped clean with only an official report on the events of Malachor V that named both Revan and Surik as the parties primarily responsible. Revan then had an intense argument with the report's author, Jedi Master Atris, who will play a large role in KOTOR II. Atris told Revan that Mitra Surik took the, pl- took the path of the exile to the unknown regions following the events of Malachor V. 
The two Jedi had a tense war of words until Revan departed. After this, Revan met with Ordo again, who had information that the small remnant of Mandalorians were gathering on an ice world called Rekiad, searching for the Mask of Mandalore. This gave Revan an intense flashback to a forgotten memory from 3960 when he and Malak followed the trail of the Sith Emperor to the icy planet and left Mandalore's mask there for safekeeping. Revan agreed not to divulge the information and Order suggested getting the gang back together, but Revan shot that idea down for various reasons we will discuss momentarily. Revan and Ordo decided to bring T3 and take the Ebonhawk to Rekiat to be there when the Mandalorians found the mask. The night before he departed, Bastila was obviously and rightly furious. She had news that she was pregnant with her first child, but Revan said he had to go to the Unknown Regions to investigate this threat. Shan eventually understood that Revan believed he had to pursue the threat to protect not only the galaxy, but also their unborn child. Revan was also concerned when he couldn't feel the child through the Force. Poor Vanner. The next day, Revan departed Coruscant in the Ebon Hawk. He would never see his wife again or meet their unborn son. On Rekiad, Revan, Candrus, and T3 landed safely after some tricky ice storms nearly crashed the Ebon Hawk. The trio then meet other members of Clan Ordo, who were one of many clans searching the world for Mandalore's mask. Revan and his companions were allowed to stay after Candrus vouched for them and sweet-talked his wife, Vila, the leader of Clan Ordo. Revan hid his lightsaber for the time being and went by the assumed name Avner while staying with Camp Ordo. I guess nobody can do anything other than anagrams for Revan. Uh, Vila and Candorus grew close again, but she was suspicious of her husband's companion, especially because his name was a bad anagram for Revan. Eventually, more of Revan's memories returned, and he realized the mask was on one of Rekiad's twin ice spears. Avner and Candorus convinced Clan Ordo to move their camp to the Spears, but this brought them into conflict with Clan Gendry, another group searching for the mask. A battle ensued in which Revan revealed that he was a Jedi in order to save Vila and a few other Mandalorian pilots. Once the battle was over, Vila and Candorus argued, but decided to make camp for the morning's climb. The next morning, Revan's memories had processed, and he remembered the location of the map of the mask atop the first of the twin spears. Vila and three pilots composed one climbing group while Revan, Candorus, and two no-name pilots made up the other. Revan and Candorus made it to the top of the first and within the tomb of Dramath II found a Datacron and the mask. However, just as the mask was discovered, Vila and her group made it to the tomb and tried to kill Revan, who was saved when Candorus shot his wife through the heart. With Vila and all the Mandalorian pilots dead, everyone who knew that Avner was actually a Jedi was gone. In Dramath the Second's tomb, Revan further processed his memories and recalled Mandalore the Ultimate's dying words about how the true Sith threat tricked him into going to war in 3976. Revan knew he had to follow the trail to a world called Nathema mentioned in the Datacron, but he informed Candorus that he would be going solely with T3. Revan handed the Mask of Mandalore to his old friend and asked Candorus to become the new Mandalore, 
to rebuild the Mandalorians as best he could and aid the Republic as best he could. The two then came up with an excuse for the death, saying they were part of an ambush from a rival clan. There, in the tomb of Dramath II in 3954 BBY, Candrus Ordo donned his people's ceremonial mask and became Mandalore the Preserver. Candrus began by uniting the warring clans on Rekiad, and then returned to known space. Revenant T3 took the Ebonhawk and disappeared from the known galaxy in search of Nathema. What the Companions Did After KOTOR This is where we will leave Revan's story until we get to the Old Republic MMO because KOTOR 2 isn't about Revan, it's about an exile living in his shadow. Indeed, all we know of Revan was that he left known space to face a much greater threat in uncharted space. This is also a convenient place to catch up with the rest of the Companions from KOTOR and see where everyone went off to. We've already covered the whereabouts of Candorus and T3, though we will come back to both in Knights of the Old Republic 2. HK-47, meanwhile, stayed with Bastil on Coruscant, but longed to find and again serve Revan. Bastil refused to tell the droid uh, where Revan had gone and even gave him to the Jedi Council for a short time, hoping to moderate his deadly programming. As amusing as that probably was, it didn't last in HK-47 Escape in Search of Revan. Juhani and Jolie Bindo both re-entered the service of the Jedi Order. We don't know much about Juhani's role, but Jolie served on the High Council in an absentee position for a few years before disappearing completely. Mission Val and Zalbar started a small business together on an unknown planet. They apparently enjoyed it immensely. Carthonassi became a growing star in the Republic Navy and would become admiral over the entire Sith fleet or over the entire Republic fleet in 3951. Revan contacted Onassi briefly before departing for Rekiad, telling him to protect the Republic no matter what. And that just leaves Bastila. Poor, sad, pregnant Bastila. Shan gave birth to Vanner in 3954 and waited for Revan's return, though she eventually came to believe he would not return. However, Bastila had secretly programmed T3 to come find her or the nearest Jedi if Revan was ever in mortal danger. This act eventually set the stage for Knights of the Old Republic 2 when T3 sought out the Jedi exile Mitra Surik. The Breaking of the Sith Triumvirate Moving back to events in the wider galaxy, the Republican Jedi sent a task force to Korriban sometime around 3954 to clean up any remaining Sith, but they found it more of a tomb world than ever before. Whatever battles had occurred on the Sith homeworld since 3956 devastated much of the planet once again. Dreshde was a ghost town, either due to Sith infighting, causing collateral damage, or Circa's loss of galactic prominence following the downfall of the Sith Empire. Probably a bit of both. As you can see, despite this being called the Sith Civil War, we have no idea how many Sith Lords vied for the remnants of Revan's Empire, let alone their names or any of the battles they waged. We simply know that the Sith Triumvirate solidified power, and then the Triumvirs went on with their own agendas with the same goal, eradication of the Jedi Order. There was just one problem. The Triumvirs hated each other almost as much as they did the Jedi. Nihilus and Sion chafed under Treya's teachings and her ideas for prosecuting the first Jedi Purge. 
Scion grew impatient with Trias' cautious strategy, while Nihilus hungered for Forge energy and was prepared for a massive strike. From these dissatisfactions, the two Sith formed a conspiracy to free themselves of their meddlesome and cautious teacher. Sometime between 3954 and 3952, the Lord of Pain and the Lord of Hunger struck Darth Treya while she was meditating in the heart of the Trias Academy. Her two co-triumvirs attacked with Nihilus using the Force to immobilize Treya against the column while Sion viciously beat her with his fists until she was left unconscious. Nihilus and Sion then combined to use the Sever Force ability against their former master, blinding Treya to the Force. Treya was then exiled, having been betrayed once again. They didn't kill her because betrayal and exile hurt far more. Besides, it's not like this elderly woman is going to re-establish her connection to the Force, find her greatest student, wreak terrible vengeance on all her enemies, and then try to destroy the Force itself, right? There's literally no record of anything occurring in 3953 across the entire galaxy. We're assuming this is when Sion and Nihilus both pursued the first Jedi purge with gusto. Darth Sion used his Sith assassins to eliminate Jedi quietly, and soon the Jedi realized they were once again at war fighting an enemy they couldn't see. In addition to the the Sith Shadow War, the Jedi began to lose faith in the Order. The heroes they might have looked to were dead or gone. Many Padawans languished because there simply weren't enough masters or knights to go around. A generation of Force sensitives lost or turned to the dark side. The Jedi also faced harsh treatment from galactic citizens who shunned and feared their supposed protectors. By 3952, the Jedi were being hunted ruthlessly by the Sith, but had no means to respond. Darth Sion hit the Jedi from the shadows, uh, his Sith assassins completing their jobs brutally and expertly. But Sion is only a sideshow here, even if he doesn't know it yet. At some point in 3952, Jedi Master Atrus secretly called for all Jedi who remained to gather for a conclave on the Miraluka colony world, Qatar. They needed to talk about the future of the Jedi Order and about confronting the hidden Sith threat. However, Atrus was actually using the Jedi as bait to try and lure out their secret foe. She leaked the location of the conclave in hopes of bringing the Sith out into the open, but Atrus greatly underestimated the power of her enemy. As the Miralu- as Miraluka are naturally Force-sensitive, the world teemed with life and the Force even before almost every living Jedi showed up. This was the massive attack Nihilus had been seeking, and he would use Katar to sate the hunger tearing him apart from the inside, and to destroy the Jedi all in one fell swoop. Before we get to Unseen Unheard, let's set the stage on Qatar a little bit. We don't know the exact number of Jedi left in 3952 when the Conclave was called, but it was less than 100. It doesn't really matter, though, because it's heavily implied that every living Jedi died at Qatar save a handful. KOTOR 2 heavily implied that literally every Jedi in the galaxy who isn't specifically shown in the game or otherwise confirmed to be alive is dead. And while that's sad enough on its own, we've spent a lot of time with a number of the Jedi who almost certainly died at Qatar. 
Oh, unless they were already killed in the first Jedi Purge. Battle of Malachor V, the attack on Dantooine or any of the other countless atrocities visited upon the Jedi since 4000 BBY. We've covered a diverse cast of characters from numerous stories, 31 of whom were presumed to have been present for the Conclave and thus died. Some were introduced as far back as our fifth episode, 3.1. This is where the fun begins. The following list contains the 38 Jedi who are likely to have been alive at the time of the Conclave at Qatar in 3952 because they would be within their species lifespan and haven't been killed that we know of. From Tales of the Jedi, we have Tot, Donita, Master Thon, Nomi Sunrider, Silvar, and Os Willem. Nomi would have been in her late 60s. From Shadows and Light, there's Kale Burkana, Master Qual, and Master Balanisi. From the KOTOR comics, there's Zane Carrick, Pharaoh, Dorjander Case, Lucian Grey, and Batrai Zeal. Zane Carrick was just 30 years old in 3952. From KOTOR, we've got Master Vandar Toker, Master Zar Lestin, Master Dorak, Belaya, Boluk, Tuka, Utheraban, Johani, Master Quatra, Thalia May, and Dostil Onasi. There are also three Jedi from KOTOR tabletop RPG expansions, Dukadar, Anyara, and Aldrin Dios. Finally, there are the four human Jedi who appear in a flashback in KOTOR 2. Nisotza, Karyaga Sin, Talvan Asan, and Zasat Terap. Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Sith Lords, one-shot prequel comic, Unseen, Unheard, appeared in Star Wars Tales 24, written by Chris Avalone. Unseen, Unheard is a six-page comic that takes place in 3952, about one year before the events of KOTOR 2. Though short, the art is evocative and gives us a look at Qatar and Nihilus's feeding as described in Knights of the Old Republic 2. The story of Unseen Unheard is told by a Mariluka who lived on Qatar named Visus Mar, a future companion of the Jedi Exile. The Mariluka are born without eyes, but see through an ability inherent to their species, Foresight. They can see the Force as it moves in and around everything, and they were made uneasy by things untouched by the Force. In 3952, the Jedi came together on the Midrim Miraluka colony world Qatar. It was a beautiful world with tranquil seas, rolling hills, and lush forests. The Miraluka colonists had built picturesque cities amongst the, cli- the hills and cliffs mm-hmm. that kind of resemble Rivendell, as shown in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Yes, I realize they weren't originally from that. I am referring specifically to the way they're presented in the films before one of you decides to get funny about all that small buildings of marble or ivory with domed roofs connected by winding staircases. Just after the Jedi arrived, so too did Darth Nihilus in his broken flagship, the Ravager. Before anyone even had time to notice, Darth Nihilus reached out into the Force and used a unique version of Force Strain to rip the Force out of every living thing on the planet, killing everything and leaving the world uninhabitable. The Miraluka couldn't see Nihilus, but they could hear and feel him when he spoke a single word 
draining all life from Qatar and feeding his hunger for force energy. We don't know the word, but whatever it was, was powerful enough to engulf the entire planet in death. In the comic, the effect is portrayed as a suffocating black cloud covering the entire planet with its tendrils, ripping the force from every living thing. Nihilus's power even leveled buildings. In an instant, the Jedi Order was obliterated along with every Mirluka and all other life on Qatar. Well, everything except Visas Mar, who watched and felt the Force being ripped from living things. When Visas experienced the destruction of life through the Force and it being drained from every living thing on Qatar, she began to lose consciousness. Seeing, seeing through the force and then watching as it was slowly, as it was forcibly ripped away from everything, nearly killed Vsauce, but she was saved. Darth Nihilus, who was walking Qatar, surveyed the damage, surveying the damage he had wrought, had spared one individual on the planet because he needed an apprentice. Days later, Vsauce Mar awoke on the Ravager with her wounds healed and found only Nihilus on the vessel. In an effort to turn Mar, Nyla showed her a vision in a way that no Miraluka could see. She was shown other species who are not inherently Force-sensitive, individuals who go through their entire lives without interacting with the Force because they can't touch it. Visa saw Nyla's feed upon these disconnected species to leave no trace of the Force, to silence the noise of the universe. She then came to believe that the people of the universe were loud, noisy chaos that required order that only Darth Nihilus could bring. By feeding on their force energies, Nihilus brought silence to the noise, order to the chaos. The vision crippled Mars' foresight and ripped the flesh out of her vestigial, vestigial eye sockets, but it also convinced Visas that the life of the galaxy must all perish to bring order. Darth Nihilus would bring order to the galaxy with Visas Mar as his shadow hand. The aftermath of Qatar. It should go without saying that Darth Nihilus, with the power to render a world lifeless by speaking a single wor word, is the eighth superweapon of our show. Even if he's not normally considered one, we respect the mask here. One side effect of the disaster at Qatar, which was situated about halfway between Dantooine and Onderon, was that it created a large blind spot in the force around Qatar. This side effect gave the Sith even greater freedom of movement between Qatar, or between the Midrim and Outer Rim in the northern sectors of the galaxy. The death toll on Qatar was massive. In an instant, millions of Miraluka were killed, along with the bulk of the remaining Jedi in the galaxy, including Masters Vandar Toker, Zar Leston, and Dorak. Though we only know three of the Jedi who were confirmed to have died at Qatar, we know the total number of Jedi casualties was far higher. The only remaining Jedi are the ones the Exile encounters in KOTOR 2 and two others who are confirmed to have survived by references and other sources. Following the Conclave, the only Jedi confirmed to still be alive are Vruk Lamar, Atrus, Lana Vash, Kavar, Zezkael, Baslashan, Disra Lurjata, and probably Vima Sunrider. Master Disra and Vima don't appear in Kotor 2, sadly. Uh, 
we find out of Desor Lurjata's survival from a reference book that says he helped the new Jedi Council after the Dark Wars ended. Vima's standing is even more tenuous. All we know for sure is that either Vima or one of her descendants survived the first Jedi Purge to further propagate the Sunrider Force lineage for another 3,950 years. We know this because Vima Deboda is a direct descendant of Nomi and Vima Sunrider, and she appears in Dark Empire circa 11 ABY. There are a couple of exceptions here, such as Revan and Mitra Surik, both of whom were outside the galaxy at the time, and a few Jedi who were in extended artificial stasis for thousands of years, like Celeste Morn. That's it. There are only eight Jedi left in 3952 out of the thousands we began with back in 4000 BBY. Worse yet... The first Jedi Purge would claim even more lives before officially ending in 3951. Not even Order 66 was so thorough as nearly 200 Jedi survived that betrayal in 19 BBY. In case we haven't been clear enough, every Jedi we've spent time with from the beginning of the podcast until this moment in 3952 is dead unless they are part of the list of the eight eight names we just read. The Twi'lek Jedi taught Donetta, who always upheld the Jedi Code and saved Vima Sunrider's life above Exus Station? Dead. The sentient Triceratops Master Thawne, who was revered and who led the Order through the Great Sith War? R.I.P. Nomi Sunrider, who had her own Tales of the Jedi Ark and later served as Grand Master of the Jedi Order? Slipped the mortal coil. Lovable doofus and unwitting hero Zane Carrick, who we spent nine f- episodes on and had a nice life with his girlfriend, Jarl, eaten by a very hungry boy. Master Zar Lustin, who defended the Dantooine Enclave from attack and served as Revan's master twice? Oh, you better believe he's dead. Hell, Jahani likely died there too, and Jolie would have if he hadn't disappeared first. The surviving Jedi split up and went underground, hiding on worlds with four signatures strong enough to mask their own. Forget fighting back, they couldn't even get together for coffee. Vruk Lamar later said, quote, We are at war, but it is unlike any war we have fought before. We have yet to even meet our attackers in battle. Somehow our enemy is targeting us through the force, striking, then retreating to the shadows. The gathering of any Jedi seems to attract them like a beacon, end quote. Atris went even so far as to spread rumors that she died on Qatar in an attempt to further confuse the Sith Lords. The once-vaunted Jedi Order, defenders of peace and justice in the galaxy, were reduced to a few scared hermits cowering in their holes, each filled with regret and waiting to die. The Crumbling Republic. As 3951 dawned, the situation looked dire for the Galactic Republic. At this point, the political legitimacy of the Republic was threatened as it reeled in the aftermath of the Jedi Civil War. The Republic fleet was rebuilding and vulnerable, while many worlds considered secession. Darth Nihilus stoked tensions on Onderon by backing a military strongman named General Vaklu. The world was divided by, between royalists, led by Queen Talia, who wished to remain with the Republic, 
and insurgents led by Vaklu who wanted to secede and retain their old ways. The conflict has the added bonus of uh, delaying the Jedi exile. In 3951, the Onderon Civil War would begin during the events of KOTOR II. While one system leaving might not seem like a big deal, any wrong move would have toppled the Republic. If Onderon seceded, then others would follow, and then who knows how many breakaway systems would vie for power and legitimacy. If the Talosian Restoration Project failed, it would cause the entire project to lose funding and consign dozens of of planets to linger as uninhabitable wastelands. According to one calculation, the Galactic Republic was 30 standard days from collapse in 3951, and it wouldn't be collapsing from war or famine, but under its own weight. The Jedi were gone, little more than a myth to most, and hated by others. The Sith were bloodthirsty tyrants and warlords, but the Sith Civil War didn't target the Republic directly. In fact, there may have only been three official battles in the entire Sith Civil War. Only one of those involved the Republic military fighting Sith forces, and that happened in 3951 during the events of KOTOR II. Finally, early in 3951, Candorus Ordo made good on his promise to Revan and united the Mandalorian clans in secret on Dixun, the Devil Moon of Onderon. Having already taken the title of Mandalore the Preserver, Candorus drew the Mandalorians to his banner. Soon, Ordo had warriors, pilots, mechanics, and smugglers joining his cause. Numerous clans joined Mandalore the Preserver, and soon he had the makings of a small army. Ordo would keep his true identity a secret from all but his closest advisors. The last Jedi. In 3951, the last best hope for the Jedi Order and the Galactic Republic bordered a Republic hammerhead cruiser called the Harbinger in the Outer Rim. This woman, named Mitra Surik, was presumed by the Sith and others in the galaxy to be the last living Jedi, returning to known space for the first time in eight years. Surik had once been a brave Jedi general who served as Reverend Second Lieutenant after Malak in the Mandalorian Wars and oversaw the detonation of the mass shadow generator at Malachor V in 3960. Being the closest Jedi to the activation, Surik went unconscious from the shock and became a walking wound in the Force. Later, Surik appeared before the Jedi Council, who exiled her from the Order for joining Revan's cause against the Mandalorians. Surik, a human female with blonde hair, was enraged and read the Riot Act to the Jedi Council. She told them of their cowardice and how it would be their downfall, but they stripped her of the Force as punishment. Surik was driven out and forced to take the path of exile, wandering the fringes of known space from 3959 until 3951. During this time, Surik became known as the Jedi Exile, a nickname she would go by for the rest of her life. The Exile lived a lonely existence until Atris orchestrated her return as a means of drawing out the hidden Sith presence. The Sith appeared to believe they had killed all the Jedi but one. As Darth Sion would later say, quote, And now you run search of the Jedi. They are all dead save one, and one broken Jedi cannot stop the darkness that is to come. End quote. Given the similarities between KOTOR 2 and Episode 8, The Last Jedi, it's funny to count the number of times the phrase, The Last Jedi, is used in KOTOR 2. We lost count at 10 before the exile leaves Telos 4. Oh, 
talk a lot more about how those two relate as we move through the narrative. Despite Atris trying to lure Surik into a trap, the Jedi exile had help from others who wished to bring her back to the galaxy. Admiral Carthonassi, the head of all Republic naval forces, had ordered the Harbinger to change course, pick up Surik in the Outer Rim, and transport her to Telos IV. She was supposed to be given diplomatic authority, but not told of her identity during the voyage. Shortly after the Jedi exile boarded the Harbinger, uh, the Harbinger received a distress call from a dynamic class light freighter that claimed to have been the victim of Sith attack. That freighter was the Ebon Hawk, and all aboard were dead, save an unconscious old woman and a deemed, <coughs> excuse me, and a dinged-up astromech droid named T3M4. The Sith ship was likewise adrift in space, with only one body found on board: a man with thousands of bone breaks and mottled flesh, who was placed in a Colto tank. Shh. Shortly later, invisible Sith assassins began a battle on the Harbinger after boarding from the Sith ship. In the ensuing chaos, an HK-50 assassination droid drugged Surik into unconsciousness. The elderly woman from the Ebon Hawk, a former Jedi Master named Kreia, found Surik on the Harbinger and dragged her to the Ebon Hawk. As they attempted to escape, they drew fire from the Harbinger and the light freighter was nearly destroyed in the process. Kreia was knocked unconscious in the shooting, and Surik was still heavily drugged. So it falls to T3 to repair the Ibn Hawk enough to guide it to the Paragus mining facility. No pressure, little astromech, just the fate of the galaxy on your shoulders. Our hero is unconscious, and there's no help for light years. The only hope for the galaxy is a single astromech droid who finally gets his time to shine. This is how Knights of the Old Republic 2, the Sith Lord, begins... The Sith Lords begins, and it's where we will pick it up next episode. KOTOR 2 Meta We decided to cover the meta info here so we can jump right into the story next time, and also because there's a lot of it. Our hope when telling the story of KOTOR 2 is that we can make it an entertaining and cohesive tale that also shows you why the game is so beloved. To some, the game is the high watermark for the expanded universe Conversely, many who started it never even finished because the original release was glitchy and broken. Lucasfilm put KOTOR 2 on a very tight deadline, a holiday 2004 release following the summer 2003 release of KOTOR. Bioware considered developing the sequel but eventually passed with Obsidian Entertainment agreeing to have the game ready by the end of 2004. There's just one problem. The team at Obsidian wasn't allowed to play KOTOR before the first story draft was due, so it was very pretty terrible in the words of lead designer and writer Chris Avalon. That's a name you'll want to remember, as Avalon is the source of much of the background information we have and has always seemed pretty honest and open about his time working on Star Wars. Our series on KOTOR 2 will proceed much like Series 5 on KOTOR did, with an introduction to the canonical playthrough and a full introduction to our heroine, Mitra Surik, the Jedi Exile. But there's a twist. We're going to tell the story of KOTOR 2 as it was meant to be told, or at least as close as we can get. That means we're going to incorporate all content found in the Restored Content mod and the Droid Planet M478, though we will note where we diverge dramatically from the canonical playthrough, such as with Master Luna Vash. In the base game and restored content mod, 
Vosh is dead by the time the Exile finds her in Korriban, but with the M478 mod, the Exile can meet Vash on that world. Mostly, using the expanded content will enable us to tell the story more fully and will hopefully clear up some of the puzzling decisions that show up in the original KOTOR 2 release. We will talk more about the restored content mod uh, as we go along, but the general history goes like this. When publisher LucasArts insisted on a winter 2004 release for KOTOR 2, it sent the game into development hell. Large swaths of the story were cut, characters removed, and their stories cut drastically. The Exiles' duels against both Darth Nihilus and Darth Treya were significantly altered and reduced. Entire quest lines were removed, including, somewhat infamously, the HK-50 manufacturing plant and a Geno Hardin plot to blow up the Jek'Chek'Tar cantina with the Jedi Exile inside. There are even... There are even... Uh, there was even a very useful cutscene between Darth Nihilus and Darth Sion, where Nihilus cows Sion and is hailed as the master. Why was Atris featured in the promotional materials as Nihilus's opposite when the two never meet and Atris is basically a game bookend? Essentially, Obsidian had to cut and or move sizable chunks of the game and tried to patch together a cohesive story within a very limited, inflexible time frame, which led to issues. Remember, development started in October 2003 and KOTOR 2 released on Xbox in December 2004. That's not a lot of lead time, and there was considerable fan backlash over the Rush final product, which contained game-breaking bugs, broken quests, and jumps in story logic that were hard to fathom. Obsidian, for their part, wanted the cut content to be added back and provided tools to PC players to allow that to happen. Additional game files were released by Obsidian to allow for as much content to be mined and restored as possible. They even went so far as to publicly request that LucasArts uh, provide an official updated content patch for all versions, but the petition was refused. Avalon has admitted that the truncated timeline shouldn't have caused so many problems, however, and Obsidian is also to blame for the final product, not just LucasArts and their deadlines. Avalon says that Obsidian included some unnecessary content, like many games to cite but one example, that should have been fully scrapped to make room for more story content. Eventually, modders used the resources provided by Obsidian and created two separate add-on mods. The first, released by modder Darth Stoney in 2010, was called the M478 Enhancement Project, and it restored the droid planet in many of its quests. The second and biggest update was the Restored Content Mod, formerly known as the Sith Lord's Restored Content Mod, or TSLRCM, which was released by Stony and fellow modder Zibble later in 2010. Both mods have received updates since release, with the latest coming in December 2012, and are compatible with one another. Now, those names all sound silly, but we really appreciate the effort because the Restored Content takes KOTOR 2 from a middling game to one of the best stories in Star Wars. In Luke's opinion, if you're going to play KOTOR 2 today, you should do so on PC and use the Restored Content mod. I will have to defer to Luke because I have not played it. The M478 Enhancement mod is also very good, though it's a bit more buggy than the rest because the entire environment was removed from the game. Despite the cut content and pacing issues, KOTOR 2 is a noticeable upgrade from KOTOR in terms of gameplay and game mechanics, 
Targeting enemies is more intuitive. Once containers and bodies have been looted, players can no longer select them, and the combat feels even better. Lightsabers and force powers sound and interact exactly like they should, and were also greatly expanded for the sequel. Battle Meditation was added as a passive force power, while there are many new lightsaber colors to choose from and some unique lightsabers to find in the game this time around. One example of both is that the player can find Freed and Nedge's short, bronze-bladed lightsaber on Duxun. On top of the development, there was the story to contend with. How would Obsidian follow the game of the year and one of the most beloved stories in all of Star Wars even then? Despite pressure and expectations to make the, se the sequel center around another reveal, the developers didn't want to live in Bioware or Revan's considerable shadows any more than they already had to. Indeed, both KOTOR writer James Olin and Chris Avalon have confirmed that Bioware already had a killer twist planned for the sequel. The player character would have been trained in the ways of the Force by a member of Yoda's species for the first half of the game until it is revealed that the Master was really training you for evil. In essence, the player would come to trust this teacher through the game and also implicitly associate them with the light side because that's how we view Yoda. The master would have been training the player to join the dark side and become a tool to be used for galactic domination, much like the relationship between Palpatine and Vader. While an undoubtedly, undoubtedly interesting idea, Obsidian decided to go in a different direction. That direction was one of the world being laid bare for the player to see. There are no secrets to be had in KOTOR 2. All of our most cynical interpretations of society are correct. The universe is just a cold and different place that spins madly on, regardless of what we do. KOTOR 2 is brutally cynical in both its overall outlook and its treatment of many institutions in Star Wars. Darth Treya, as usual, said it best prior to the game's climactic final duel, quote, Perhaps you were expecting some surprise for me to reveal a secret that had eluded you, something that would change your perspective of events, shatter you to your core. There is no great revelation. There is no great secret, end quote. If KOTOR was about finding yourself and accepting your past, KOTOR 2, The Sith Lords, is about pain, depression, reconnection, and the catharsis that, that come along. The sequel is meant to wrestle with the darker nature of the Star Wars franchise and serve as an unflinching denunciation of the Jedi and the Republic. The game is, without a doubt, the most hostile toward the Jedi Order of any Star Wars story ever. It's questionable whether such a thorough indictment of the Order will ever be written again if the reaction to The Last Jedi's moderate condemnations are indicative. Whereas KOTOR dabbled in iconoclastic thought, the sequel assumes it as the default position. The Republic? Little more than an oligarchy to prop up core worlds while also allowing them to exploit the rest of the galaxy. The Jedi Order? A dying sect of battle mages prosecuting a seemingly internal extrajudicial holy war against another sect who worship the same god differently. Your character Reverend from KOTOR? A war criminal who is responsible for the deaths of billions before he ever fell to the dark side. KOTOR 2 wants you to know that your ivory tower institutions are mere facades used by the wealthy and powerful for their own benefit. The game needs you to understand that your heroes are little more than children's stories built to hide very real, very awful people who are unworthy of worship. And worst of all, KOTOR 2 wants you to feel everything. If you're going to save the galaxy, 
You're going to have to reconnect with the wider world after facing too many dark nights of the soul, after suffering prolonged depression. After all, quote, apathy is death worse than death, end quote, because at least death leaves a corpse to begin the cycle of life anew. In a way, that's the story of an exile who returned and saved both the Republic and Jedi, though neither deserved it. In another way, it's about coping with the pain you still carry from your personal Malachor V, the pain that echoes in and around everything you do. Some lovely writing, Luke. So, with that, we're going to close this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next episode, we'll go through the KOTOR 2 character creator, really introduce Mitra Surik, and push through a really obnoxious tutorial level called Paragas. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPod or email us at FOTORPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.